Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in October of 2018. What a novel my life has been, Napoleon once said of himself. Born into a poor family, he was a general by 26, an emperor by 35, an effective master of Europe by 40, his power unparalleled in modern history. Yet his downfall was no less dramatic than his meteoric rise. The story's been written many times over. In some versions, he's a military genius, a divine avatar, in others, a war-obsessed tyrant, a devilish ogre. In Napoleon, a life. Uh, best-selling historian Adam Zamoyski cuts through the mythology to uncover the real Napoleon. And we are uh, pleased to welcome Adam Zamoyski to the program uh, from, I believe, London. Mr. Zamoyski, thanks for joining us. Good afternoon. Uh, good afternoon. Um, um, <laughs> yes, uh, afternoon where you are. <laughs> thanks for thanks for joining <laughs> us over the over the, uh, the 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 time difference there. Um, so, uh, Napoleon, very very interesting figure. You're, I think, uh, the main goal here. One of the main goals is to cut through the mythology, cut through the iconography, right? Get us the real uh, the man behind all of this. You have an interesting background. Um, you uh, you say you grew up amid the crossfire of contradictory views of Napoleon. Between your Polish-speaking home, English schools, and holidays with French cousins, you ex- uh, encountered all divisions of Napoleon, I suppose. Well, that's right. Um, and they were wildly differing. Uh, at the point is that, um, you know, Napoleon, Napoleon's life uh, lends itself to fairy tale. And um, people, even historians, are very prone to uh, weaving wonderful fairy tales, you know, a better story. And uh, every nationality, every um, different uh, nation in Europe has their own Napoleon narrative. Hmm. Uh, it's interesting, and, uh, it's interesting to, to just scan the illustrations in your book. Um, and uh, you know, some are very heroic, commissioned by Napoleon himself, or people who were who, who held him as a great man. Uh, there's a couple of uh, portraits um, by British artists, and uh, and you see a completely different view of Napoleon j- just in the pictures. Yes, um, in fact, if you look at uh, I've I've um, only reproduced uh, portraits that were done from life. Uh, by real artists, by good portrait painters. And what they all seem to show is a um, an element of diffidence and even insecurity. And even the heroic portraits done by Ingres of him um, dressed up and his ridiculous fig uh, pretending to be Charlemagne, uh, if you do a close-up of the face, you actually see the guy looks really quite worried <laughs> he, he almost seems to be saying you know hang on does anybody actually believe any of this <laughs> um he was um i think the man napoleon was was you know well, first of all he was a human being and this is what most historians um and most of the mythologizers forget uh and and i tried to get to that human being mm-hmm. and um he's actually rather more sympathetic to me than than the the hero uh so i want to get to the man very interesting you've you've painted uh, quite the portrait um from 
from sources at the time, right? And from there's a lot of correspondence that you've dived into from Napoleon. Um, I, I want to get to some of the, the the myth though before we you know the myth that you're trying to cut through. Uh, he very very soon, I guess during his time, and then very soon after. Uh, he was uh, co-opted, or he, he was he was used uh, by very various factions. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Well, he first of all he um, built up an image of himself. He was the most incredible propagandist, and he um, both uh, out of a sense of self-preservation, but also to help his his um, ascent to power. He um, lied like anything, so he'd write, after a battle, he'd write it up in heroic terms, exaggerating the numbers of, um, you know, the, the numbers of enemy dead and taken prisoner and all the guns and the, the standards he'd taken, and minimizing his own losses and going on about the heroism of himself and his troops. And he, he did weave an extraordinary and uh, kind of narrative around himself, which was also what the French nation of the time wanted to believe of himself and of itself. And um, as a result, um, he became, uh, as much as anything else, a symbol of a kind of France that they wanted to see. That's, uh, I guess that we have phenomenon of, you know, fake news now, propaganda is still going strong. Uh, and that's an element, I think, right, if uh, people <clears throat> want to believe some of these things, and so they suspend disbelief. Yes. And uh, what was interesting is that, um, you know, my book came out uh, here in, 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 in the UK a couple of weeks ago, and um, I had a terrific review in the, in the London Times. Um by somebody I don't know who, who the reviewer is, but uh, anyway, he um, he welcomed the fact that I debunked a lot of the myths um, because he, he he was not a sort of Napoleon admirer, and he he said it's a marvelous book and it's so good that all the myths have been debunked, and then he finished up by saying um, actually, but the trouble is the. You know, the story of Napoleon was more entertaining before. <laughs> it's like, okay, this may be history, but it's not what I want. I want the fairy tale. Um, and, you know, it's... it's um, And coming back to the mixed visions, you know, the French are wedded to a fairy tale. Um, the British have a fairy tale, but just like in 1940 against Hitler... In 1800, they stood alone and defending Europe against the evil one. Um, the Poles have this crazy idea that Napoleon loved them and was going to recreate an independent Poland, which is complete nonsense. Um, but people like their myths, and they cling to them. And, and, and very often you get um, people get quite upset with you if you <laughs> debunk them. Um, in, in, in the 19th century, uh, many nationalist movements and many revolutionary movements also used him or their idea of him to further their own means. So you had, on the one hand, you had revolutionaries um, posing as, as, as little Napoleons. Mm. And on the other hand, every single dictator from, um, you know, sort of Bolivar to Bokassa, 
<laughs> in Africa has used the Napoleonic narrative to repress and and slaughter. So, mm. You know, it's he's he's um, he can be used for anything. Mm. I believe you you reject the the great man narrative. Uh, do you? And 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 you you describe Napoleon in some ways as a quite ordinary man with some extraordinary talents. Well, yeah, you know, I don't buy I don't buy the kind of genius myth. You know, there, you know, we all have different talents, greater or lesser, and some people work at them harder, and some people are cleverer at certain things, and um, and and some people do have extraordinary gifts, um, which would which just they do seem sometimes to be absolutely you know God given. Um, but I didn't, on the whole, buy this this thing that people are just sort of born as a sort of godlike uh, creature. And the fact is, he he worked incredibly hard at to achieve his successes. And when he stopped paying enough attention and got a bit lazy uh, because he was already so powerful, he began to make mistakes and um, and of course made the you know, this reputed military genius ended up making uh, the greatest um, self-inflicted military disaster in history when he invaded um, Russia. Um, and, and, and also at Waterloo, where he just completely sort of made a total mess of things. So, you know, I don't buy, buy that... that he was, that there was anything kind of special about him. It was like when he was paying attention and working hard, he was great. When he wasn't, he was um, he, he could make a mess of things. Um, and uh, you know, and, and what was everything that was great about the Napoleonic era was, um, you know, in, to a large extent due to him, but also to a very large extent due to. Uh, other people of his time, his contemporaries, who worked with him. Uh, so, it was because you, you've alluded to it at the beginning of an answer. Uh, I've had the question now, then, you've said, um, you know, in some ways an ordinary man with, with some extraordinary talents, worked very hard. Um, then how do you explain the, you know, the, the incredible accomplishments? Uh, essentially, emperor by 35, effective master of Europe by, by age 40, then it all came unraveled. But uh, some some incredible and 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 some of them lasting accomplishments. How do you explain those? Well, again, I mean, he 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 came to power uh, not just by himself. It's not like one guy turns up and says, "Right, I'm going to stage a coup d'état." He was very very careful. Uh, a huge proportion of the French political class wanted. Um, a strong man to restore order. Uh, indeed, many wanted a king, and they were looking round and they looked round at various generals. And he came along at the right moment, and uh, he he you know it's almost as though he surfed a, a wave uh, to gain power. And once he got into power, he used his power very cleverly, and he simply gathered up all the most intelligent people in France, and there were very many of them. And he he would sit them down and say, right, now let's put together 
a code of laws. Come on, guys, you're all clever. Let's get let's let's go through this. And he would kind of metaphorically bang their heads together and say, "Come on, we'll stop discussing. So you know, make a point, get to the point." And he'd keep them up till four o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Uh, and say, I'm not letting you go to bed until you have sort, you know, until you've done this, you know, finished this paragraph of the law or reached a conclusion on this point. And so he he forced them to concentrate their minds and and to stop discussing and being too theoretical. He was a, he was an immensely practical man and a pragmatist, mm. and so he squeezed the best out of people, and there were a lot of very good people around. So he, he squeezed out some amazing um, uh, institutions. I mean, arguably, they're not institutions everybody would like, whether, whether you like the, the French legal system or the, the French um, uh, the, the Napoleonic Code or the French educational system, or you think others are better, that's another question. But he did create an extremely efficient set of institutions and uh, structures that which have survived. Mm. There's another, uh, you know, many traits we'll get into, but uh, when you point out in the book that very clever, wise on his part, he tended to try to co-opt his en- enemies, right? Bring them in. Let's, uh, let's join forces rather than, uh, rather than uh, you know, uh, crush them uh, if he could. Yes. Um, well, he had this uh, division. I mean, French society had been horribly divided by the revolution uh, and, um, and and violently polarized. And there were, on one extreme, there were Jacobins who thought that you know, everybody should be guillotined um, and, and there should be a sort of tyrannical power of the people. Uh, on the other end, there were royalists who wanted to bring back the Bourbons and, and the Ancien Régime. And he wanted to create a fusion, as he called it, of the best of every system and to bring all the best people in. And he did. He managed to bring some 40,000 nobles who had emigrated during the the revolution for fear of their lives um, and had had been um, sitting around in places like England and Germany waiting to um, reoccupy France. And he, he drew them back in and said, come on, well, you take a stake in this new France and we can make an amalgam of the best of France. And and that was a considerable achievement. Hmm. I, I want to get into, uh, let's take a break. When we come back, I want to get into the Napoleon the Man. Of course, that's what you're focusing on here. Um, some things I'd learned from the book um, <laughs> surprised me. I would have thought uh, Napoleon would have been a strategic genius. Uh, I, I would have thought he'd be great at chess. You say he's, he was bad at chess. Um, and uh, n- not yeah. a particularly good public speaker, although he's really good at rousing yeah. his troops, but but in political sense, not a, not a great public speaker. No, absolutely not. He, he, um, he was always confusing his words, and instead he'd say... A good constitution instead of, um, uh, of of confirmation, and then he'd say he'd call an armistice an amnesty, and he <laughs> used to keep confusing words terribly. Mm. Um, and no, he 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 was no good at chess, and and he cheated shame shamelessly at cards. 
Yeah, there's a scene where his mother calls him out. <laughs> yes, yeah, she she forces it, and whenever he's challenged, he just he then just sort of confuse all the cards, shuffle all the cards on the table, say no, 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 I was right. Right. Um, he he would then return the money the next day. <laughs> so <laughs> winning was the thing. He'd he'd give you back your money, but he had to be seen as winning, I guess. Yeah, he had to yeah. win. <laughs> yeah. Let's we'll get into more of uh, Napoleon the Man following this break. K-pop stars are products of fantasy world. On the next Radio Lab, we enter the multi-billion dollar image machine that is K-pop. The girl next door, all cute and, you know, like the ideal girlfriend kind of idea. It's a prison you decide to walk into. Join us for the next Radio Lab. Tomorrow morning at 10 on UPR. On the next edition of the Putumayo World Music Hour, we'll explore the rich diversity of world music right here in North America and talk to an American original, Joan Osborne. Well, I've made two trips to India, and I really just went to study the music. I'm Dan Storper. And I'm Rosalie Howarth. Give your passport a rest this time and join us for the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Join us Friday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in October of 2018. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. We're talking with historian Adam Zamoyski. He's the author of over a dozen books on Polish and European history, including 1812, Napoleon's Fatal March on Moscow, and the very interesting book, Phantom Terror. I want to talk a little bit about that one uh, as we go along. Uh, he lives in London and Poland. Uh, the latest book is Napoleon, A Life in which he cuts through the mythology, uh, gives us, his goal is to give us uh, Napoleon the man. And uh, we've reached him uh, from London. You can join this conversation by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. You could call us at 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. Uh, Mr. um I-, I wonder... Uh, there are several facets I'd love to get into. Maybe just open-ended first. Um, tell us a bit about Napoleon the Man you, that you found from the primary sources, cutting through the myth. What what stands out most to you? Uh, what stands out most is that he was um, actually very vulnerable as a person. He came from a hick town in the middle of nowhere. He He was sent to school at the age of nine in a completely different climate. He could barely speak French when he arrived at his school. He was he was small. He was puny. He was um, rather olive complexioned. Uh, he came from the provinces, indeed from a colony. Uh, he couldn't speak French. Uh, uh, there was even a rumor that he was uh, illegitimate. And uh, so, you know, he 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 was quite. Uh, uh, he had quite a hard time there. Um, he he held his own, and he fought back by, um, you know, trying to get smarter than them, which he did. Uh, but his uh, vulnerability never left him to the end of his life, and he, to the end, he had a, a terrible complexes about his origins, um, about his um, physical abilities, about his, uh, even about his intellectual acumen, even though he had read a huge amount and educated himself, he was still fundamentally a very insecure person who was 
very, very susceptible to any criticism or, or, or any, any perceived slight. Um, rather a sad story in many ways. One, one sort of, even when he's being hateful, you can't help feeling sorry for him. Mm. Um, you know, and, and then uh, he had huge problems with people. I don't think he, he wasn't very good at, at, at friendships because he was um, quite he, he was he was quite tucked up inside himself um, and and couldn't relate to people well and and had problems with particularly with women um, and he he only had a, a couple of women who really he felt um, at ease with and he only had a couple of close friends people who who could get close to him uh, but otherwise, it 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 was some. Um, he he was a he was a loner in many ways, and um, you know, it's, having achieved all everything he'd achieved, he then uh, he, he he seemed incapable of just sitting back and enjoying it. He, he kept feeling he had to do more and and earn the respect of people more by doing achieving greater things. Uh, he 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 didn't he didn't have a high. I don't think he had a great sense of self worth. Actually, mm. I was interested to learn about his family. Of course, if you if if you uh, think about Napoleon the myth, the, the myth doesn't have a family, right? But Napoleon, uh, this large and uh, kind of a rambunctious Corsican family. Uh, rivalries, jealousies. I think there was at least one brother who felt that the wrong Bonaparte had achieved power. Well, yes, because in, in, in the sort of familial code of Southern Europe, um, the, the eldest brother was the, the eldest brother. He was the, the head of the family. Well, Napoleon was the second brother along, and his elder brother, who was pretty useless, um, <laughs> kept, kept sort of thinking, well, hang on, you know, I'm the head of the family. And... Uh, even when Napoleon had become emperor and and and, and, and it had been sanctioned by a plebiscite with you know however many million um, yes votes there were, and his elder brother Joseph sort of said, "Well, actually, it's me who should be emperor," <laughs> and and sort of somehow implied that all those people had actually voted for him. Um, so, but at the same time, rather than just ditching them all, uh, Napoleon was um, felt bound by the familial code uh, to stick together. You know, he regarded the family as a kind of, as a firm, uh, a very sort of southern southern um, European nation, uh, the kind of thing you get in southern Italy and, and, and uh, Mediterranean um, areas. And uh, in some ways, they were, some of them were an asset to him, but most of them, they were the most frightful, most of the time, they were most frightful liability, mm. um, behaving badly, and, and crossing his plans, uh, and so on. So um, they, they cost him more than they, they gave him. And he had a very interesting, I guess you put it under statement, tempestuous marriage um, with, uh, with, with the famous Josephine. Yes, well, the poor fellows. He he had a he'd had a very desolate um, uh, emotional and sexual life when it came to women. 
um, in his youth, um, and he was very awkward, and uh, and had, you know he'd had sex, but it was clearly not a great experience. He actually wrote up his first um, go, and it, it doesn't appear to have been great. And then he was set up with this older woman who was an accomplished lover. Uh, and suddenly she made it all work for him. So he went wild with the excitement um, and and thought he'd fallen in love and gone to heaven. Um, the trouble is, <laughs> she wasn't remotely interested in him and, uh, uh, and, and found him faintly ridiculous. And I don't think she found him particularly um, good in bed. Um, so she took uh, lovers. Um, blatantly cheating on him, even even though they by then got married. Um, he in the end he he forgave her and did find a, a sort of happy kind of middle class married existence, very comforting. Uh, and and indeed she was a very good influence on him. She she was a, an extraordinary woman uh, who was very flighty in some ways, but. But she was wise and she was gentle and everybody adored her. She was a genuinely kind, kind woman. And she'd lived through the horrors of the terror. She'd been in jail about to be guillotined and she'd survived that. And, and uh, so she was quite damaged and they, they clung to each other. And it, it was very sad that he felt he had to repudiate her and, and marry a younger woman. Mm. I want to read just this uh, paragraph. This is so interesting to me. This is uh, Adam Zamoyski from his book, Napoleon, A Life, which is out now. Um, you, re- you write, from his earliest years, he had sought role models, embraced his ego by casting himself in the image of a Hannibal, Alexander, Caesar, or Charlemagne. But after briefly considering Themistocles, he had lighted upon an entirely new model to impersonate, one uh, just as mythical as any of the others, which would gain far greater resonance than all of them put together, that of Napoleon. So, so that he he chose him this an idea of himself to to be a role model. Well, that was that was what was so extraordinary about um, his his captivity after Waterloo, as you know that <clears throat> the, the Brits shipped him off to uh, the island of Saint Helena in the South Atlantic. Uh, where they treated him um, really very, very badly um, because <laughs> he, he pointed out, um, he, he asked them, am I a prisoner of war? In which case, if I'm a prisoner of war, I should be released because the war is over. Uh, and he said, um, if I'm not, then I'm being held as a criminal. And criminals are allowed access to their family and they can write letters. You <laughs> went there in jail, and he could do neither. So the Brits did treat him extremely badly, and he very quickly um, worked out that he was going to take his revenge by um, representing his last five years that he spent in captivity as a kind of martyrdom. And he had uh, a few courtiers surrounding him, and he knew they were all writing down their um, impressions and his statements. So he'd sit there after dinner, uh, talking about his life and his past and what he'd wanted to do and about people. And, of course, rewriting history in the most glorious way. Um, A lot of this is complete rubbish. But, of course... 
the moment he died, they all went back to France and they all published uh, their accounts of his captivity. And what came out of that, particularly one of them, the Memorial de Saint-Hélène by the Count de Lascaz, it turned out to, to be the kind of Bible of the Romantic movement. Uh, he, he, had, he had turned himself into a kind of mythical um, martyr, uh, the great man who had wanted to achieve so much for Europe and the world and had been brought low by nasty little British shopkeepers. Um, and so all the romantics who rejected the materialism of the 19th century uh, saw him as a kind of, uh, as a victim and martyr to um, to it. And, and and so the cult of Napoleon, the kind of spiritual cult of Napoleon, was born. So having worshipped, as he had in his youth, um, people like Alexander the Great, um, he actually built up, <laughs> after his final defeat, he built up, uh, and this was possibly his his greatest um, victory, uh, he built up this um, quite fantastic cult of himself, which which grew amongst uh, particularly young people throughout Europe, and not just Europe, for, for generations, uh, which you have to admit is quite, it's quite an achievement to do after you've actually been defeated mm. and brought down. Um, start again and, and, and um, triumph in a, in a different di- sort of dimension. Mm. I want to uh, talk a little bit about, uh, I guess, the prevailing attitude of the time. Napoleon, you're right, certainly had this. I guess this is comes in the the foment of the revolution and the post-revolution. Revolution, which, by the way, gave Napoleon opportunity to rise so quickly through the, through the ranks of the army. Um, an idea in the air that... Anything was possible, right? We could we could remake the world, and I, I believe you you write that Napoleon had this this feeling. Yes, I, I think his, his generation did, and th- this was what um, you know he couldn't have won all those battles and done all those things, achieved all those things without the people um, and all the young men of his generation uh, were fired by kind of. An astonishing feeling that they were they were creating a new era. I mean, remember that the French Revolution wasn't just about a change of government. Uh, it was very much the idea that they were replacing the old with the new. They they were chucking out the old religion for starters and bringing in new faith. They, you know, they. They changed. They brought in a new calendar. They brought in new weights and measures. Everything was going to be new. It was going to be a different world they were creating. Something it was terribly futuristic. The whole idea, um, and because it seemed to be working or at least happening, you know, things that had been unthought of. You know, you don't just change the calendar because somebody decides it's a good idea. Uh, it seemed like an extraordinary thing to do, and a lot of these people thought they were creating a new age and a new world. And it seemed to be working. The sheer release of energy uh, 
meant that, that there was fantastic motivation in various fields, and certainly in the military field. And that's why these young men who thought they were heroes of antiquity, that thought they were like Alexander or Caesar or whoever, charged into battle against um, old-fashioned soldiers who were just treated soldiering like any other trade. You know, you, you, you did what you were supposed to do and you took money for it and you tried not to get killed if you could possibly help it. Uh, and suddenly, you know, the, these, the French um, armies were um, inspired by uh, not a fanaticism, but just a faith in themselves and in what they were doing that, that kind of, you know, just blew, blew the opposition away. And so he, he had this very powerful, you know, okay, he did a lot to, to inspire them and galvanize them, but, but the material was there, the raw material was there. Um, you know, he, if he'd suddenly been given a, a few regiments of, you know, contemporary Austrian or, 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 or Russian or Prussian troops, he wouldn't have been able to, to, to do what he did. Uh, it, it was, France was undergoing this extraordinary um, moment uh, of faith in itself. Uh, which seemed to make everything possible, and and that and that was uh, w- was largely what responsible for, or at least what what enabled him to do what he did. And of course, it began to fall off as that generation um, grew paunches and, and and wanted to stay home and um, and make babies rather than make war, mm. and and hence it became much more difficult in the. And the victories were less spectacular, and then, uh, and then after that, it was only the defeats that were spectacular. Mm. So it was, uh, it, it was something of a national phenomenon in a way, or a, or a European, you could almost say, phenomenon. Let's take another break. When we come back, more with Adam Zamoyski. The new book is Napoleon: A Life. More following this break. Everyone has a favorite author, actor, musician, or comedian. At All Things Considered, we don't just bring you the news of the day. We introduce you to the coolest people you thought you knew and learn what really makes them tick. What you hear might just surprise you. Join us every afternoon for All Things Considered from NPR News, conversations that connect. Join us for NPR's All Things Considered weekday afternoons at 3 here on Utah Public Radio. Are you looking for a way to make your nonprofit organization more visible to our statewide community? Utah Public Radio's community calendar highlights events across the state, including musical performances, festivals, live theater, art shows, dance, educational or guest lectures, workshops, volunteer opportunities, and more. We have a more user-friendly submission page. Just visit the UPR website at upr.org and click on the community calendar link. There, you can review the submission guidelines. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in October of 2018. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour today is historian Adam Zamoyski. His latest book, Napoleon, A Life. And uh, you are welcome to join the conversation to by email to upraxcess at gmail.com. Upraxcess at gmail.com. Adam Zamoyski, um, I want to talk a bit about the revolution and the, the context here. 
Um, of course, after the, the revolution and the terror, and it very much traumatized all involved. And uh, then the desire came for some stability and order, and that, that's where Napoleon came in. But when it wasn't him, I guess it would have been somebody else. Um, I want to talk a little bit. And Napoleon, I believe, saw himself, you write that he saw himself as completing the revolution, right? Um, finalizing it. Uh, but I want to talk about um, the reaction. And you write about this in your very interesting book. I want to spend just a little bit of time here on, uh, which I found fascinating. Just reading about, I think this will be the next one I pick up, Phantom Terror. Um, and so uh, European forces, conservative European forces, uh, you say, a thought that uh, once they had uh, you know, defeated Napoleon, banished him, that they had managed to put the genie back in the bottle, but they were still terrorized by this this fact, right? This revolution, um, and uh, looking for phantom terrors all around. Uh, in many cases, uh, ones that weren't there. Yes, it's a, it's a, it's a, a curious human characteristic that that uh, once you start uh, believing in bogeymen, they are everywhere. <laughs> They're under the bed, behind the wardrobe, um, hiding in in the garden. Um, and there had been this mounting idea throughout the 18th century that there was a sort of wicked sect of people, you know, the Illuminati, the Freemasons, whoever, that were um, undermining the established order, the established faith, um, undermining thrones, undermining the social system, social hierarchies and everything. And the French Revolution seemed to confirm that there was this uh, terrible... uh, Conspiracy, and that it had managed to um, uh, to to uh, overthrow the you know one of the greatest monarchies in Europe, and was uh, trying to overthrow the others. And although uh, in 1815 the, the Allies who crushed Napoleon put in place uh, an extraordinarily um, strong um, kind of security system an international one, and they kept meeting uh, every couple of years at congresses to check on on how things were going. And although they had all built up huge police forces and secret police forces and, um, and, and, you know, surveillance systems and so on, uh, the more they did so, the more um, frightened they became uh, that... um, there was a conspiracy out there um, about to outwit them. And as so often happens in these situations, the more um, police they recruited, the more these people who felt, and these are all these um, spies and secret agents, all had to justify their existence. So uh, when they couldn't find evidence of conspiracy, they'd invent it and send in blood-curdling <laughs> reports of um secret meetings by conspirators vowed, vowing to murder every king in Europe and so on. And uh, it, it was, it's an extraordinary um, uh, example of sort of human, human psychosis of uh, how something can get completely out of hand um, and provo- provoke greater repression, which then provokes, eventually does provoke revolution um, because of its injustice. 
Um, and uh, really, the, the revolution and Napoleon uh, brought in the whole surveillance state, uh, which is is its own worst enemies in, in many ways. It's, it's a fascinating, um, fascinating phenomenon. Um, I hugely enjoyed researching that book because you know you'd find in in police archives um, ridiculous reports by secret agents saying that they had met somebody calling themselves X Y Z who said he had attended a meeting where daggers were shown and you know and they'd, they'd, they'd be drawings of these daggers with inscriptions saying, I have been made to kill a king or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know? And it, it was all like something out of a cheap novel. And yet um, governments up and down Europe um, believed in this and were absolutely petrified. Mm. I want to read something uh, that you uh, that you said in a previous interview. This is very interesting. Bringing it forward to resonances in probably... <laughs> Uh, every times, but certainly in our times, uh, Adam Zamoyski says, it gives much to reflect uh, upon when it comes to how the state grows in power with every war and crisis. How irreversible is the tendency of all rulers in modern times to expand their organs of information and control. Now that growth, while making life a misery for all of us, is actually remarkably inefficient and counterproductive. Worth reflecting on when going through security checks at airports, you say. Yes, I mean it, it, it's um, it is a, a fact of, um, of human nature that no no government will ever reduce the amount of surveillance or um, or reduce its powers, and so everyone adds a bit on, and ultimately it's um, you know it, it's very it's a very um, moot point as to whether any of it serves a purpose at all. And when you look at security checks at airports, they are unbelievably meticulous and tiresome and difficult and all that. And a huge industry has grown up around them. And yet, uh, as we've seen, they are ultimately uh, only as efficient as the intelligence behind them, because it's extremely rare that uh, anybody has been actually caught out by a regular security check and quite a few terrorists have walked through them very, very easily. Uh, and and usually the ones who are caught out are caught out because somebody, some human feeling, not the check itself, but somebody there says, hang on, this person doesn't look right, quite right to me or something arises suspicion. Uh, but it's usually proper intelligence um, that that provides the stuff rather than um, than the sort of mass uh, mass blanket intelligence which we all seem to um, to crave. I want to uh, just spend a, a, a couple of minutes on a very interesting uh, another thing you said in the same interview about the lessons learned from history by historical figures. Um, and so you say it's often said if Napoleon had only learned the lesson of Charles Twelfth, he wouldn't have evaded Russia in 1812. If Hitler had only heeded what happened to both of them, he would not have met his nemesis uh, there. You would go on to say, actually, they did study campaigns of their predecessors. They just learned the wrong lessons, did they? 
Yes. I mean, the, Napoleon had um, Voltaire's history of Charles XII um, at his, you know, in his um, traveling case throughout the, the um, Moscow campaign. And he'd read it before. Um, and he thought he was going to be cleverer. And he, um, he devoted a huge amount of time on the kinds of wagons that were bring, going to bring his supplies forward. And it was all terribly clever and well worked out. And it all, all came to nothing at all. Uh, but the fundamental uh, lesson they failed, both he and Hitler um, failed to learn, is that um, Russia is, uh, or was certainly in, in conventional times, uh, strategically invulnerable, because unlike every other state in Europe, when where if if you actually took their capital and their main industrial base and their main financial base, uh, they you know people would put their hands up and say, okay, um, I surrender because the state ceased to exist, whereas. Russia wasn't a conventional state. Um, Moscow, although it was theoretically, um, you know, the heart and soul of Russia, wasn't actually its administrative capital. And uh, the Russians were so nomadic in, 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 in mentality, if not anything else, that they were perfectly happy to burn their capital uh, just to spite um, Napoleon and deny him supplies. And this was the lesson he didn't learn. I mean, the climate stuff as well, you know, that didn't help that he ignored warnings. But um, really, it was that, that, you know, he could have marched around the whole of Russia, uh, occupying, you know, because if, even if he'd occupied St. Petersburg after that, um, or it, it wouldn't have made much difference. He wouldn't have got what he... What he um, what he wanted, which was submission. Um, and, 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 you know, with Russia, there's only one thing you can do, either destroy it completely um, or else just leave it alone. But you can't force Russia to submit like you can force um, most uh, established countries to submit just by showing them that, that you know, you're more powerful than than them, and it would be in their interest just to sort of say, yes, sir, and I'll do what you say, what you ask. Uh, and that was the, the lesson they didn't learn. Hmm. Just um, uh, two minutes left. I want to get this in. This goes to, we started the, the conversation talking about how you were, in some ways, rebutting the great man uh, theory of, of history, getting to the real Napoleon here, and, and that he... Uh, able though he was, ordinary in many ways, and riding the, the crest of history, uh, you know, social um, um, forces. Uh, here's a very interesting statement that you made. You say, we learn our history as children, and therefore become used to accept the great men of the past as being noble, wise, and intrepid. In actual fact, most of them were as second-rate as the majority of those who hold sway today. <laughs> And I think it is salutary <laughs> to be reminded that people are people and will behave as people do stupidly. Um, so that's, uh, you know, it's kind of reassuring in a way, um, you know, that the people don't change over time, including our politicians and leaders. Kind of disillusioning in a way. What, uh, in one minute, what would, what would you have us take away from that statement? 
Well, frankly, I mean, if, 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 you look, if one looks at oneself, uh, honestly, we're all ridiculous at times. You know, even, even when we can occasionally do something really good, we can really be clever. The fact is, at, at bottom, we're all just quite silly people who um, stumble around trying to, trying to do, get things right and often getting things wrong. And, uh, you know, the idea that there are people out there who always get things right because they are somehow special um, is just, is just um, you know, complete uh, nonsense. <laughs> well, it's a fascinating book, Napoleon, A Life. The author is historian Adam Zamoyski, author of over a dozen books on Polish and European history, including 1812, Napoleon's Fatal March on Moscow, and the Phantom Terror that we made reference to in this uh, conversation. Lives in London and Poland. Uh, we've reached him uh, from London. Uh, Adam Zamoyski uh, enjoyed the book a lot, and uh, thank you so much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. They are all liars. Well, most of them are anyway. Next up is Bread and Butter, a culinary chronicle with Lael Gilbert. Almost all the recipes I have stuffed in my grease-splattered binder at home indicate that it's somehow possible to caramelize onions in five minutes or less. It's not possible. Sure, you can soften onion in a bit of melted butter, maybe get a bit of translucence in five minutes, but even that's pushing it. You want light golden brown? Try 15 minutes. And if you want fully caramelized, rich, nut brown, and mouth-wateringly sweet, try standing in front of that pan for 35 full minutes at least. Julia Child tells it straight. In her description for French onion soup, she tells you to cook the sliced onions slowly until tender, about 10 minutes, then blend in the salt and sugar, raise the heat, and let the onions brown, stirring frequently until they are a dark walnut color, 25 to 30 minutes. Okay, 10 minutes plus 25 to 30 is 35 to 40 minutes, according to Julia. That's how long it takes to caramelize onions. So what's with the prevarication, recipe writers? Truth is, you probably know that your estimate isn't accurate. But being accurate would convert a 30-minute meal into a 65-minute meal. That sort of task can be pretty intimidating for a Tuesday evening, and it might be hard to sell a recipe that begins with 35 minutes of stirring at the stove. So why not just say soften the onions? Somehow calling food soft or translucent doesn't hit the stomach the same way as calling it caramelized. That word makes you think of warmth and flavor and sweetness and candy. Caramelization actually does have a lot to do with sugar. Onions are naturally sweet and get even sweeter in the pan. When cooked, heat raises the temperature in their cells until the complex chain molecules break down into simple sugars. This reaction, called pyrolysis, is what causes sautéed onions to brown and develop a sweeter flavor. When you cook those complex sugars to the teetering edge of too cooked, that sweet flavor becomes delicate, intense, focused, and irresistible which is why people are willing to put in the time. So how do you make a properly caramelized onion? First, plan more than five minutes. Use a wide, thick bottom pan for maximum heat contact with the onion slices. Five or six large onions will yield about two cups of finished product. And any onion will caramelize, so feel free to experiment. Yellow onions tend to caramelize easily and have a really versatile flavor, but red onions 
are fun for their deep purple color and are great on pizzas and salads. Coat the bottom of your pan with olive oil, or you can use a mixture of olive oil and butter, about a teaspoon per onion, and add the onions to the hot oil and stir to coat. Spread them out evenly, then turn on some good music or check your email or empty the dishwasher if you must, all the time keeping one eye on the pan and stirring it occasionally. The trick is to leave it alone enough to let the onions brown, but not so long that they stick or burn. If you stir them too often, they turn limp and noodly, but stay an unappetizing parchment color. With patience, you'll begin to see the golden peeking through at about 10 minutes. As soon as the onions get soft, you can add a pinch or two of salt. Some people add a teaspoon of sugar too, but it's not necessary. If you're patient, all the sweetness can come naturally from the vegetables. You should be scraping up the sticky bits from the bottom of the pan as you go. It's all just flavor. And towards the end, you can deglaze the pan, pouring in a bit of liquid like beef broth or wine to scrape up all those yummy monosaccharides for even better flavor and color. Just let the liquid cook down for a minute or two before you pull it off the heat so the onions won't be soupy. You can store them in the fridge for up to five days and in the freezer for up to three months. It's efficient, if you love the sticky things, to cook a bunch at a time and have them handy for everything from scrambled eggs at breakfast to melted goat cheese panini the next time you want to impress your guests. This is Lael Gilbert for Bread and Butter. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org. <laughs>